This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. This Washington Post Live podcast is presented by AT&T Business, keeping your business connected today and building it for tomorrow with 5G on America's best network. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. She was a social worker, a police chief, a congresswoman, and was on Joe Biden's shortlist as a possible vice presidential candidate. In this segment, Representative Val Deming joins the Washington Post to discuss her views on the Biden-Harris ticket, whether President Trump will win Florida again in 2020, and how the global pandemic continues to wreak havoc on her home state. Let's listen. Hi, welcome back to Washington Post Live's coverage of the Democratic National Convention. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. And my next guest was an impeachment manager and was under serious consideration to be Joe Biden's running mate. She is Congresswoman Val Demings of Florida. Congresswoman Demings, welcome to Washington Post Live. It is great to see you. Jonathan, it's great to be with you as well. So, okay. The last time we talked was in your office on Capitol Hill, and I ended the podcast interview with the question asking you, how did it feel to have your name bandied about as a potential running mate for for Vice President Biden? And your answer was so stirring. You talked about you were the daughter of a, of a, a, a maid and a janitor, and it was so impassioned. And then, you know, we ended the interview and the two of us looked at each other because it was so intense and we burst out laughing. Um, <laughs> now let's fast forward. It's been six months. You went from having your name being bandied about to being under serious consideration. What was that like? What, what happened? Let us in. Spill the tea. And, you know, Jonathan, thank you so much for that uh, precious memory of that day in in my office, because I do remember when we just looked at each other after talking about my parents, you know, the daughter of a maid and a janitor grew up in the South, poor black and female. And my name was being thrown around as a possible uh, VP contender. And, you know, I, I burst out into laughter that day because it was like, yes, in this country, this is possible. This is what America is supposed to be about, that opportunity. Um, Jonathan, the vetting process was intense. It was crazy, but it was so amazing. And I said it that day, and I'll say it now, after having gone through the process with serious consideration, what an honor it was. Uh, we had some amazing women in the process. Uh, Vice President Biden has chosen an amazing woman to run with him. And Jonathan, the hope that we need for the future, uh, all of our fears and concerns about the current direction this country is headed in. And now with this team, it just gives me and others such hope. And it is an exciting time. Now, you've said that seeing Senator Harris named as Biden's running mate 
has reaffirmed your belief in America. Talk more about that. You know, Jonathan, when I think about Black women and our contribution to building this great nation as we celebrate a 100 years of women having the right to vote, and I want to be clear on that again, um, the women's movement, the suffrage movement was about white women having the right to vote. Black women were really um, not wanted in that struggle. There was a belief that having black women being a part of the movement would somehow sabotage um, of the movement. And so when I think about that, it's one thing to talk about black women and being the backbone of the party and all that black women have done in this nation. But the selection of a black woman to run for vice president is action. That's action speaking much louder than words. And so to actually see it and think about all the amazing black women, whether we go back to Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth or Shirley Chisholm or Coretta Scott King or Rosa Parks, Ida B. Wells, and so many others who struggled for this moment. To actually see this moment come to fruition is, uh, it gives me tremendous hope. You know, President Trump and his allies are trying to paint the Biden-Harris ticket, or not trying, they are painting the Biden-Harris ticket as way too liberal for uh, the American mainstream. How would you assess the ticket? You know, I, it would, the president could really do himself a big favor by just being quiet. We're talking about a man, Jonathan, who proved, I mean, I served as an impeachment manager. He proved long time ago that he would do anything to quote win, that he would lie, steal, and cheat for that opportunity. That's not politics. That's just the truth of the situation. So I just, nothing surprises me that really comes out of this president's mouth. As Mrs. Obama said on last evening, uh, he's in over his head. No one knows it better than he does. And so the only tactic that he does have is to try to paint this particular ticket in some corner it doesn't matter what he says. Let's look at what this ticket does. They have an agenda that clearly lines up with the American people's agenda. And so that's what we're focused on, uh, what uh, uh, Vice President Biden and Senator Harris are going to do, not the president's illusions and fantasies. Actually, you know, you, you brought up the fact, yes, you're an impeachment manager, and the whole reason the, the president got impeached was over Russia and the, in the investigation. And now today there's news breaking of a, of a, Senate, a Senate committee, I can't remember if it's the Intelligence Committee, but a Senate committee released a bipartisan assessment that showed that, uh, yeah, there was collusion going on between the Trump campaign um, and, and WikiLeaks. Can, do you know about that assessment? Can you talk more about it? That was with the Senate Intelligence Committee. But what I can say, you know, every time I hear breaking news like this, Jonathan, this was breaking news in 2016. This has been breaking news throughout this president's administration. And so we had an impeachment trial where we presented a overwhelming, clear and convincing case against the president and his wrongdoing, where he invited 
foreign governments to interfere in our election. There was never a question about that happening. The only question was, what was the Senate going to do about it? And the Senate chose, with the exception of one Republican, chose to not do their job and to not hold him accountable. So Jonathan, quite frankly, every time I hear a breaking news story about more of the president's wrongdoing, like planning to have his or give his acceptance speech out of the White House, I couldn't do that out of my um, congressional office. Every time I hear about the president inviting China or doing something else that's totally unethical, illegal, or inappropriate, I can't help but think about the Senate who chose to turn a, a blind eye and a deaf ear to the president's wrongdoing, and so here we are a blind eye and a deaf ear to the case that you and your fellow impeachment managers made uh, in, in before the nation. So when you see breaking news, do you look at like the breaking news from today and go, I told y'all. Every time I, I Jonathan, and, and look, we're in the middle of a public health pandemic. The president didn't create that, but doggone it, his response to it, he creates that. And we have a complete failure and absence of leadership coming out of the White House. So quite frankly, every time I hear 5.4, I, I hate to give the numbers because they change so frequently, million people who have contracted the virus and almost or close to 170,000 people who have died in this country. I can't help but think about the Senate not holding this president accountable. You know, my husband likes to say the best indicator of future performance is to look at past performance. That is so true because Donald Trump showed us clearly who he was when he was running for the office and everything that he has done along the way has been all about him. It has nothing to do with the American people. His complete failure of leadership, his inhumane policies, his unbelievable, unwavering efforts to divide our country among racial, along racial lines. I say it again, Mrs. Obama had it right. He's in over his head and he, 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 he obviously has no interest in governing because he has not tried from day one to govern. And so here we are. And and yes, we we not we it wasn't us telling the American people, but the evidence, the testimony, or the lack thereof, the obstruction, the interference, the lie after lie after lie was loud, pretty loud and clear. But the Senate, the US Senate, the Republicans, the GOP, and the US Senate are the ones who had the power and the authority to do something about it, and they chose not to. Too. And so just as I said in an op-ed that I wrote a couple of weeks ago, we need to hold them accountable for their failure to hold the president accountable. Uh, you, you mentioned the pandemic, and let's talk about the pandemic in Florida, where, um, you know, the, the, the pandemic and the coronavirus is running rampant in Florida. Can you, how would you grade the state's response to the pandemic? And did the state reopen too early? Well, let me say this, Jonathan, when I think we have to, when you ask about the state, I have, I think we have to separate 
um, what direction came out of the governor's office from action that was taken by many local officials. I think our numbers, while they are alarming, concerning, and troubling, I really do believe that our numbers in the state of Florida would be even worse were it not for those local mayors and commissioners and others who took matters into their own hands in the absence of any clear direction coming out of the governor's mansion uh, to keep their people safe. And I have to give it to different communities who, when they were told to wear a mask, for the most part, they did it. When they were told to stay home and shelter in place and not go out unless they had an emergency or had to or had to go to work, for the most part, they did it. When they were told to social distance, uh, they did it. Our governor, unfortunately, decided to follow the leadership coming out of the White House. Well, it's difficult to follow someone who's going nowhere. There was no national strategic unified plan coming out of the White House. So what our governor decided to follow, I'm really not sure. And, and so in the absence of leadership, Jonathan, bad things happen, good things don't happen well enough. And so for those, as I said, those local um, jurisdictions that took matters into their own hands, working along with different businesses and others, having a strategic plan to op reopen in a strategic, careful way, uh, I think mm -hmm. they did the best that they could do. But in the absence of any clear direction, local governments were left to scramble on their own. Some were more responsible and accountable than others. And so here we have alarming numbers in the state of Florida. Well, another battle that's going on that's coronavirus related is whether or not schools should, should reopen. Should they reopen? Should they go to all online? Where do you fall in that debate? Should schools reopen in Florida? Well, you know, I thank God that we have a uh, school superintendent, at least here, uh, that is very well experienced, very well qualified to make the best decisions as they pertain to um, her particular jurisdiction. I do believe, though, when the president comes out with a blanket order, basically saying that all schools have to open and not really considering the conditions on the ground is ill-informed, and the president has not, I mean, to say everybody just has to open and to even threaten to withhold funds from various jurisdictions if they don't open is, uh, is, is just the most ridiculous thing that I have heard. And so as it pertains to our schools, I do believe that we, that's one area that we should leave to the local superintendents and allow them based on their knowledge the knowledge of their uh, uh, staff, um, you know, how well they've worked along with our state, state health officials to put processes in place that can help keep the children safe. I've heard, of course, reducing the class side, practicing social distancing, wearing masks or face shields, um, either practicing social distances in cafeterias or not going to the classrooms at all. Now, we have seen um, not here in Florida yet, but some horror stories in other states where um, rules were put in place, but obviously were not being followed. And so there are a lot of things that have to be weighed um, before we can open the schools safely. But I do trust our superintendents to make 
the best decisions and not have to respond to a blanket order that has absolutely no plan in place. Congresswoman, let's talk about the post office and what is happening there. The, the Postmaster General is set to testify before the House Oversight Committee on Monday. What do you want, well, one, your view of what's happening with the post office and, and what the president is doing and what DeJoy, the Postmaster General DeJoy is doing, uh, but also what do you want to hear from the Postmaster General when he testifies? You know, Jonathan, in this country, uh, with all of the issues that we are facing, a public health pandemic, healthcare, access to quality education, uh, housing, affordable housing shortage, our infrastructure needs to be rebuilt, refurbished, um, jobs, wages, racial discrimination, systemic racism. Um, we are dealing with a lot of issues. I really thought trying to save the post office would certainly not be one of those issues, but here we find we have a concerted effort on behalf of the President of the United States to basically destroy the post office as we know it. Now, let me be clear on this, and I know you've heard it before. Um, the post office is the oldest, most reliable, most trusted institution in the history of this country. It has a extremely high, it's in the 90s, 90 plus favorability rate. So to try to use the post office as a political pawn for the president's re-election on the one hand, but it's not all about race or the, the upcoming election. It's also about the ability to make money. And that all centers around the president, whether it's about getting the president re-elected or his ability to make money. Remember I said every decision is always about him and his well being to use the post office as a, as a political pawn is, is disgraceful. Uh, matter of fact, uh, later today, we're having a, a national day of action at one of our post offices um, to just talk about what is going on and really uh, raise the public's awareness of this concerted effort to destroy the post office. When the president puts one of his uh, very high donors in the position of postmaster general, and his first order of business is to basically remove much needed sorting machines that will certainly, they're beneficial every day, but certainly as we approach um, the upcoming election to reduce overtime, we know how critical overtime is in meeting those critical deadlines during particular seasons, election season being one of them, or whether it's short, um, the uh, post office is short staffed. All of those things are critical. And so it does appear that the president's appointee, the postmaster general, um, is playing politics and doing things that will adversely impact the United States Postal Service ability to do their jobs. And Jonathan, we can talk about the election and vote by mail because I do uh, support a push for vote by mail, but let's not forget that the post office delivers medication, checks to seniors, medication, mm -hmm. uh, delivers medication to veterans, um, and also support small businesses. And so it's so much bigger than this election 
Um, and we need to do everything within our power to support and and protect the U.S. Postal Service. So, so Congresswoman, on that on that point about the impact that the post office, the Postal Service has on senior citizens and veterans, do you think what's happening with the post office will backfire on President Trump and the Postmaster General? I'm certainly hoping so, um, Jonathan, and that's why it's so critical that we have events like this and others are National Day of Action. We're doing it around the country, members of the House, to increase awareness. People are so busy. They're worried about their jobs or like thereof. We have millions of people who are unemployed. They're worried about uh, this pandemic that we find ourselves in. They're worried about their children going back to school. They're worried about being evicted. And so it is incumbent upon us to make sure that the public is aware of what's going on. You know, the U.S. Postal Service is the only institution that touches every American address. And so you talk about leveling the playing field, regardless of what neighborhood, regardless of inner city or in a rural area, the post office is the one that really, the only really clear agency that levels the playing field and touches everybody, regardless of who they are. Oldest, most reliable, most trusted institution in the history of this nation. And we have to do everything within our power to protect it, thereby, protecting the people that the post office serves. And as I just said, that's everybody. Congresswoman, um, you're an African-American woman. You're also the former police chief of Orlando. And since May 25th, we have seen demonstrations where those two, your, those two parts of your identity have come into conflict uh, since the, the killing of, of George Floyd. Um, what insight can you give to, to folks who might be watching um, from your vantage point as being a, an Afri African-American law, former law enforcement official about what this moment in time that we're in, what that means to you, and what's the way out? You know, Jonathan, this moment in time is, it may be new players, it's not a new moment. Um, we know that racism, discrimination, systemic racism has been a part of this country for 400 years, since the very beginning. But what I do know, having served as a social worker, also as a law enforcement officer, and I think about the first African-American officers who integrated the Orlando Police Department in 1951, I know that the department became better because they were a part of it. I talk a lot about the importance of diversity within our law enforcement ranks, but within all systems. We still have a lot of work to go in that particular area, but we still need to make sure that police departments reflect the diversity of the communities in which they serve. And that diversity has to be reflected at all rank levels because we need people that look like you and me and others, people of color, in the rank structure within uh, the department. And so what we have to do, and I'm so excited really about the uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which is a step in the right direction, I believe that we can do a lot when we have incoming uh, new president and new vice president and the full weight of the federal government behind this issue. 
to be able to create national standards for law enforcement agencies because they're all pretty much governed by state law right now and certain states love to do their own thing as it pertains to who they hire, accountability, training, and other areas to have some national standards that will govern the way police departments operate, whether they're a 10-person agency or a 36,000-person agency, to have some national standards as they pertain to training. Um, we talked a lot about diversity, I mean, de-escalation training. De-escalation training is the first level on the force continuum. Uh, and it is basically the gift of gab, the ability to be able to use communication skills to de-escalate a situation. It is not required training in all police departments, and, and that's why it's so critical to have these national standards that can give many smaller agencies, in particular, the tools and techniques training that they need to be more effective. Also, we need to look at training officers. We need to look at who's training new police recruits. I was absolutely shocked to learn that the, the officer in Minneapolis was a training officer, mm. because remember, those training officers are the ones who set the unofficial standard for what's acceptable and unacceptable on the street. Having a national database that will um, uh, not allow police officers who might be fired from one agency or resign pending termination to simply walk out of that agency into another agency and be hired. But Jonathan, I also want to talk about this as we move forward, and I do believe this can be done. As we deal with police misconduct, with the full weight of the White House incoming administration and the federal government behind us, certainly looking at President um, Obama's 21 century policing task force recommendations, we've also, if we're gonna complete this work, we've also got to deal with some of the social ills that cause mm -hmm. decay in communities in the first place. We've gotta look at substandard housing, We've got to look at drug addiction. We've got to look at substandard wages and jobs. In Orange County, for example, we say that the Orange County Jail is the biggest mental health facility in the region. We also say that the Orange County Jail is the biggest drug treatment facility in the region. So as we deal with police misconduct and getting our law enforcement agencies on a better track, We've got to deal with, get serious as a nation about dealing with some of the social ills that cause decay in communities in the first place. And mm -hmm. so I think when we get serious about that, uh, we can move forward in a better and more positive way. Congressman, we've got less than, than four minutes left, uh, and I want to end by asking you this. You were an impeachment manager. You've seen much more than we in the general public will ever see when it comes to the president and Russia and the last election and all of that. Given that, how concerned are you that, the pre that President Trump and Republicans will stop at nothing to ensure that, he, that President Trump is reelected? Well, what I believe, Jonathan, is that this president, the president, would stop at nothing to be re-elected. 
The problem with the Republicans is that they will stand back and watch as opposed to intervening. We know that's what they will do because that's what we have seen. The best indicator of future performance is to look at past performance. And so I don't put anything past this president. He's demonstrated that he will do anything to win. Uh, and when his friends go to jail, who his enablers, he will pardon them um, without a second thought. And so we have to make sure that we are uh, doing everything within our power to protect uh, election uh, integrity. Um, one thing we do know is that Russia interfered in the 2016 election, but understand this, Russia never stopped their efforts to interfere uh, in American politics. They are trying to interfere as we speak uh, right now. And so our job working along with uh, local supervisor and state supervisor of elections officials is to make sure that we have we, we have proper equipment in place, that we do regular assessments, that we test for any security breaches uh, in those systems to make sure that we have well-trained and uh, uh, we're staffed up for election day and then also encourage people to vote by mail because we don't know what the conditions will look like on the ground come November 3rd, even with the public health pandemic. So we need to be prepared. We need to make sure that the infrastructure is in place. That's why it's so important with a ton of other reasons too, to protect our U.S. Postal Service. And so we need to do everything within our power to make sure we are ready for this election. But I put absolutely nothing past the president. As I've said earlier, he has demonstrated that he will lie, steal, and cheat to win. Uh, I lied, Congresswoman. I do have a, a, actually another question. And I think I may have asked you this before, if not in this interview, in, in past interviews. How, how surprised are you that your Republican colleagues, either in the House or the Senate, haven't done as much as I think they should to uphold their oath to the Constitution, at least their duties as a, as a co-equal branch of government, and hold the president accountable. At a minimum, do at least what Senator Romney has done, which is to at least speak out and say that the president is wrong. Why don't you think your Republican colleagues do that? They certainly John, weren't shy I when President Obama was in office. I've got to say it as a former law enforcement officer, um, you know, we had a mission. Our mission was to reduce violent crime and keep people safe. And we focused on that mission and we did just that. And when I went to Congress, as you know, I was sworn in in, in 2017. I really went with that same kind of attitude and spirit. Yes, I'm a member of the Democratic Party, but I don't make my decisions solely based on my party. I believe that we'd have a mission and we would work to fulfill that mission of serving the American people. It was absolutely shocking to me to watch my Republican colleagues, um, way too many of them, uh, stand on the sidelines and watch the president engage in unethical and sometimes illegal behavior. I believe, um, Jonathan, that they are simply, and I've had some private conversations with many of them where I've gone into their office, slammed the door and said, what the hell did you just do with that vote? Um, and, and you, you know, so, um, but it's fear. It is just plain old 
fear. We know that the president uh, will do, as I said, do and say anything. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, too many of my Republican colleagues are afraid of what he will do or say about them. Uh, Jonathan, I love being a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, but let me say this. When I do retire one day, I do want to be able to retire, come back to Orlando, Florida, look in the mirror, and not only like, but respect the person looking back. Um, and so it's disgraceful, but it's just plain old fear of what mm -hmm. this president would do. Congressman Val Demings of Florida, great to see you again. Thank you for, for coming on Washington Post Live. Good to see you too. Take care. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.